0: I actually look at all oil and gas companies, uh, large ones and small ones. Uh, Right now, small oil and gas companies are historically mispriced. So right now we're buying small oil and gas stocks primarily because they're so, so cheap.
1: My guest today is Josh Young. Josh is founder and chief investment officer of Bison Interest, a hedge fund based in Houston, Texas. Bison invests in small oil and gas stocks in the U.S. and Canada and owns several stocks that have multiplied many times over since 2020. In 2021, Bison's hedge fund rose 349% net of fees. Josh's view on oil and gas are widely followed in the press and on social media. I recently sat down with Josh, and we talked about his outlook on oil prices and how he has found success by investing in small stocks that other investors have ignored. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it, and I've looked forward to it for the last week or so because I've been following you for a while on Twitter, and your 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 number of number of people who have been following you has just exploded.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on. And yeah, social media is fascinating. I mean, I'm basically doing the same thing I did two or three years ago, except I would post something and one person might notice it two years ago. And now, um, you know, especially if it's controversial, uh, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people see it or interact.
1: Yeah. Wow. It just exploded. And I just find you're, you're, pro- you're a prolific Twitter, a tweeter. Uh, I see a lot of tweets at all crazy hours of the day, because I'm usually up at some of those hours too. But uh, I know you just had a baby, so that's why I, I saw one the other day, at, I think three or four in the morning or so. Uh, so uh, keep them coming. That's really great. Really good stuff. Yeah, thank
0: you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> haven't exactly had much sleep in the mm-hmm. last week or so. Hopefully this will be coherent.
1: Okay. All right. Josh, so you've been in the oil business around or, or oil for or energy, really, for for a long time, right? For at least seven, eight, I think 10 years or so, or even longer. And... Um, And I I want to hear your perspective on this, because you're a guy, and I always admire money managers, people because they're the ones, anyone could say something about something about an industry, but if you don't have your own money on the line, it's it's a lot different. And you have your own money, your partner's money on the line, and you take positions, and you go big or go home, and you do a lot of research. So before we even begin, I just, without even talking about any different companies now, because I know you do real deep dive research. Um, what, what is the outlook? Now, well, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Talk to me about the supply and demand story of oil. Because what I'm seeing is it just doesn't make sense. It's economics 101. It's limited supply, uh, limited, uh, uh, supply and increasing demand. But am I missing something here?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm, uh, I guess just to get the disclaimer stuff out of the way, I'm the largest investor in the strategy that I run, and none of this is a solicitation for investment or a recommendation to invest in anything. Uh, just, you know, you invited me on, happy to to come on and, and chat with you and let your listeners uh, learn more about the, the oil and gas industry and what I do. Um, so um, I, <laughs> I have a lot of money riding on this, and we've done really well. And so... Um, you know, it's one of those things where you look at something closely and the better you do, the more this sort of this weird opposite thing when you have your money invested versus if you're just an expert pundit where, you know, the guys getting on TV that are just the paid consultants or the supposed whatever, you know, they get paid to get on TV, they don't get paid to be right. And especially when it's really me investing and then other people sort of investing alongside me through this through this investment strategy that we run, um, you know, it's just sort of a totally different dynamic. So um, part of why I'm up late is taking care of my six day old. Uh, Part of why I'm up late is reading interesting data, chatting with people via social media or email or text or whatever in China and various other places. connecting with fascinating people who sometimes are only available at 4 a.m. Houston time or whatever. And so um, I think it's important to to share. I think that's one thing that's an important filter when you think about where you're getting information from. The other is uh, track record. And like you mentioned, I mean, we've done very well, fortunately, and um, done very well versus other sort of oil and gas stocks and indexes um, in a way that's considered statistically improbable where active managers typically only outperform if they outperform by a small amount versus benchmarks um and bison has done much better than that and again i think i think um skill um and uh, analytics, it's, they're very hard to measure, and they're often ephemeral. And the starting point, we were talking about this before we started recording, uh, you know, with companies, and you look at management teams that do really well, um, and money managers do really well. And if the performance is good, that's a good starting point, I think, for identifying someone who, who may be more likely to have an insight. So, so I think it's important just to sort of baseline, like, hey, why should you listen to me? Why might I have a cogent argument in a space where everyone has an opinion. You know, you ask almost anyone who's active in money markets or economics or whatever, and they'll tell you, oh, oil's going up or down, the dollar's going up or down. People have um have strong opinions, and you know, I think I think it's a really complicated question. Um, and I think it's really compelling here. So the way you 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 framed it is is reasonable. The problem is that oil can move a lot, oil prices on the margin, like other commodities and the marginal supply of oil uh, driven by price is actually very inelastic. So um, if oil prices go up a lot or down a lot, you actually don't get a lot more oil supply in the short term and the uh, demand elasticity of price is also uh, very low. So basically you end up using about as much oil if prices are high or low, and you end up producing about as much oil in the short run, whether prices are high or low. So. It can go both ways, and that's part of why you see so much price volatility. It's also why, as an investor in the space, I pay such close attention to the macro, because you really have to have... So all this is a prelude to, to thinking about it, but I think it's important to sort of frame the question well, which is, one, like, hey, who are you? Two, what do you know? And then three, how do you think about this sort of really complicated problem to maybe be able to be more right than others on average over time? So. Um, So the oil market is really undersupplied right now, relative to a stable state global economy. Um, We're not in a stable state. So there's bank failures that have happened recently, There's all kinds of disruptions uh, post-COVID. China is still reopening. There's lots of complexities around the world that are sending uh, demand in both directions, uh, both higher than you'd think because of the sort of revenge travel from reopening and revenge sort of services consumption in China and certain other parts of the world, as well as what looks like a pretty bad recession already underway in the US and Europe. As measured by oil consumption and
1: oil products consumption. Okay, well, and well, so let me interrupt you a second, Josh. Let me let, let's sure. break this down. Let's talk about the supply. Now, I saw that for the past eight quarters or so, which is two years, that capital has not been from major oil companies have not been used being used for exploration and and drilling simply because of the political environment out there and. That is, and, and as you know, I don't have to tell you, I'm just telling our listeners, that uh, once you stick a straw in the ground uh, every day, you're getting less and less because you're draining that. You're basically uh, taking that oil from the ground, and, um, and it's, it, it diminishes. So you have to always look for new supply. We have not seen, and please correct me if I'm wrong, for the past eight quarters or so, not much money has been going into exploration. Is that more or less right?
0: Yeah. So, so I think there's sort of the, the near-term, like what's happening right now, and then there's sort of the longer-term trend. The, the longer-term trend is enormously bullish from a supply perspective because there's not been exploration, forget the last eight quarters, the last 10 years, there's been massive underinvestment in exploration. There's been a lot of development of very short cycle shale wells in the US and Canada and certain other projects that bring on a lot of production in the short term and then see very high decline rates from those wells. So they require a lot of reinvestment in order to sustain production. But the actual, Exploration activity that you need to do, so then you can delineate fields, so then you can go through and drill a thousand wells and get you know thousand barrel a day initial production rate wells. Um, that activity has been grossly insufficient. And so when you when you talk about insufficient exploration, especially by big companies, it's a it's very it's complicated. And and recently there's been a decent amount of of capital spend um, by. Uh, Especially large oil and gas companies, let's say in the last two to three quarters, especially after oil prices hit, uh, let's say $130 a barrel last year, there's been a step up in development uh, spend, but it's not—it's sort of close to an inflation-unadjusted number from the last. Uh, top of the oil cycle from let's say 2010 to 2014. So you're 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 not catching up from inflation. and You're also not catching up for the decade of underinvestment and exploration. Um, so again, it's a little it's a little more nuanced. It's not like the rig count didn't double from the low uh, to recent levels, and it's not uh, in the U.S. And it's not like there there aren't a bunch of offshore rigs that are starting to get hired and starting to get put to work over the next two years. Um, it's just its a question, I think, of time frame and then order of magnitude. And I, I would argue after how little has been spent for how long, you'd actually need to see on an inflation-adjusted basis, all-time high capital spend. And maybe you'd need to see that for five to seven years mm-hmm. before you get back to sort of a sustainably oversupplied market. Right, but that, again, that's, just
1: to play, it's, that's just to play catch up, right? With We're really behind the eight ball.
0: Yeah, I mean maybe you'd need four or five years to catch up. And but it's not on, on, on,
1: like, on one year. It's it's substantial.
0: Yeah, it's it's really it's really big. And I think, you know, there's sort of the the short term and medium term. Hey, what's happening in China? What's happening, you know, from a demand perspective, from a supply perspective, hey, what's happening with shale, what's happening with Guyana? what's happening in certain other uh, you know, what's Russia doing? How much is Russia exporting? And then there's this bigger problem, like you're talking about, which is a real problem and it's it's getting bigger every year while there isn't that spend and then there's the other aspect that i think gets missed a lot that we start talking about and people it didn't really it doesn't seem to have resonated which is very odd to me but there's a giant hole in oilfield services capital spend so it's not like you know, your Exxon, your Chevron, your Petroboss, you say, hey, I want to go develop a field. So you put out a tender to get the various oil field services to be able to go drill it, that a, offshore describe well.
1: Describe what oil services are.
0: So, So you put out this, you say, hey, I want to... I want to drill a well, you're not, Exxon's not actually drilling a well. Exxon is hiring Schlumberger or Halliburton to help them manage the project. And then those companies are hiring lots of subcontractors. Let's say it's an offshore well, maybe they're hiring Transocean or Diamond Offshore, one of these companies that owns an offshore rig, whether it's a drill ship that can drill in deep water or a jackup rig that can drill in shallower water. So you're going in your, as Exxon, you're hiring a project manager, typically one of the global um, top three or four oilfield services companies so Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes maybe Weatherford and so you're hiring them to essentially help you manage the whole thing and then they're your general contractor essentially and then you're hiring a rig and you're hiring um, various companies to provide chemicals and drilling guidance and if it's offshore, uh, you know you may hire a, a submarine it may be automated or it may have you know, may send divers down, to ensure various aspects of the process, Um, there's all kinds of, there's, you know, many hundreds or thousands of steps and technologies and companies and people who are involved in getting a single offshore well um, designed and then implemented you know getting the drill ship out let's say and the site you know <laughs> defined you know you want to drill in the right spot and then you want to um set up typically you're setting up um on the ocean floor let's say it's 5000 feet down or 8000 feet down you're setting up essentially a drill site down there and you you run the drill rig from obviously the, the surface but you're um but the drilling has to actually happen at the at the surface of the, uh, at the bottom of, on the floor of the ocean and you're drilling down from there. So it's very complex. There's lots of different companies involved in lots of different equipment. And so when we think about it and say, okay, well, let's say that oil majors should be spending twice as much as they are in order to sort of catch up for this decade of underinvestment. Well, even if they want to, they can't right now because there just aren't enough viable drilling rigs to be able to actually engage in that activity. So, what do you need to do? So, right now, what's happening is a number of the offshore drilling rig companies. So, again, the Transoceans and Diamond Offshores and Volaris and whatever, those companies have some additional rigs that aren't currently being used or actively marketed that they they call it cold stacked in some cases they warm stack them so if it's warm stack they basically have it all ready to go and they spend a little money to move it and a little money to reactivate it and then they have to staff it and it's ready to go um cold stack they could have a bunch of the parts sitting in a warehouse here in Houston, or you know the UAE, or various other places around the world, and they need to go spend in some cases a hundred million dollars or more, and in some cases a year or more to reassemble this let's say, drill ship to be able to, and then re-equip it and order things from Drillquip or various other sort of uh, equipment or forum or various other equipment providers to be able to get to the point where, let's say two years from now, after all this work done in, in planning and preparation by, let's say, picking on Exxon, by Exxon's team, as well as, let's say, Schlumberger's team, um, to be able to actually have a rig, to be able to then engage in the drilling activity that's desired to, let's say, drill an exploration well. So so right,
1: so, so right now, even if they wanted to catch up, uh, it's like building a house, right? Uh, um, yeah, I could own the land, but okay, I want to get a general contract and hire the plumbing, hill. But a full of general contractors is busy, and they're just they're just they don't have any more bandwidth. I'm gonna to have to wait online, even if I want to build a house tomorrow.
0: Yeah, but but it's a much more complicated process than a house because again, there's very big, very expensive, very specialized equipment that, that's it's just so big and, and complicated and expensive. It takes months or years to get it. And then if you want to build a new one, I mean, one, you need way higher drilling rig rates, which means you probably need much higher oil prices. Um in order to make it economic. And and the big companies, generally the exons of the world, are pretty good about not engaging in these projects unless they expect a, a high positive return, even in a lower oil price environment. So, they need to be convinced that oil is going to be high enough that they can go face into all of these extra costs and issues in getting these these wells drilled um, and still earn a positive, substantially positive return that's risk-weighted and right. time-weighted and so, all so, that. Let, so, let me
1: interrupt you here. So you're telling me that we have, let's say, four years, uh, even if we did this at, at full steam ahead, four years, just to catch up with the, the, the uh, underdevelopment and underspending we've done for the past 10 uh, and the replacement and all of that, even if they wanted to go full throttle, there just isn't enough Schlumberger's, Halliburton's out there in order to make this happen. Is that more or less right? Yeah. So, I mean, the the general contractors, there's an issue, you know, Halliburton,
0: Schlumberger, Baker, uh, especially during COVID when oil prices went negative and then were low for a while, they unfortunately had to lay off a number of people in order to stay in business. So there's a people issue, but there's also an equipment issue. The people issue is, is complicated, but I, I believe it would be. Uh, it's going to be addressed via just enormous levels of compensation. So in the same way that let's say software engineers until recently were paid, let's say a million dollars a year by an Amazon or Google. I mean, I know a few of these guys and you know, they're they're very competent. They're, you know, around my age, around 40 and they're but they were paid a a price that no one could have imagined 10 years ago. I mean, software engineers were not paid a million or $2 million a year, almost no matter how talented they were in 2010 but they were paid that last year and they were getting hired in a very tight market where there was just a huge demand for certain really specific skills. I think there's gonna be that sort of same wage escalation along with other sorts of cost escalations across the oil field services space as there's this ramp up. So I think the labor part is addressable via price. The equipment part is harder from a time lag perspective. You can get, I believe the right people, you just have to pay them a lot because some of them are better uh, deservedly for having been laid off at a bad time uh some of them are you know employed by the amazons or googles or whatever of the
1: world some of them are doing various right, but, but other things or that's, businesses. A, that's a big checkbook right so that's a solvable problem yes. but in terms of equipment yeah, that's solvable. there's only, there's only equipment x amount of equipment Okay? Yeah, the
0: equipment's a bigger problem, and it's going to take even longer. And so that's, uh, you know, I, we, we have some investments in the offshore drilling space, uh, more on the equipment side, some investments in the onshore drilling and completion space, also uh, tending more towards the equipment. Again, I just think the equipment, there's, there's this intrinsic lag, and then a lot of the fabrication facilities and shipyards and stuff are busy building other things. And, you know, oil tankers, for example, their day rates are enormously high, so the shipyards are all busy. So you want to build a drill ship that's nice, right? Like even if you wanted to, which you don't because the day rates are too low, you need the day rates to double and you probably need $150 oil before you start building sustainably for a while before you start building drill ships. Um, you you just can't because the Korean shipyards are busy and the Chinese shipyards, I mean, there's just, there right. there's all this backlog. There's capacity, and there's a, you,
1: you, right. There's a capacity issue. So... And then it'll take a couple of years, let's right, say, right. maybe
0: they'll, they'll do it real fast and do it in a year, three years from now. So you're talking four years before you have a, a ship delivered, and then you have to staff it and test it. I just, you know, and then, and then you have to start drilling. And then, so, you know, when you think about production, uh, sort of incremental production from all of that investment and activity, you start to push. So you start to push that four-year number to a seven-year number to maybe a 10-year number. And when you think about the complexity and cost of that sort of problem you understand why it took oil going from 10 to over 100 and took 15 years essentially for the last oil bull market and why i can look at oil having gone from negative to 130 to recently what is it 65 64 something like that for wti i can look at that and say no we're not we're not dumb. We're not even close. We're closer to the beginning than we are to the okay. end. We haven't solved this big problem. Okay. So I think that's sort of the, there's a big supply problem and demand's not going anywhere and demand is pretty price and elastic. Okay. So, so, so let's, um, hang on a
1: second. Hang on, hang on. So the supply side where we're still 10 yards behind, even if we, even if we did everything you mentioned, and had the capacity and had this, we're still not going to be able to catch up, and catch up we need to do. Okay, Now let's move over to the supply, Simple economics 101. Supply is limited to uh, tight, to be kind. We'll use that word for now. It's supply is tight, and it'll take some time to ramp up. And now let's talk to the demand side. Talk to me about the demand side, because you do some fascinating work with uh, charting or following uh, flights going uh leaving china Which, give me some insight into that why do you sure. what do you look at china so we
0: we do a lot of work on a lot of different Demand and supply aspects. We just only talk about some of it, and <laughs> some of it is it looks really good, so it's fun to talk about. And some of it is really important. And the the flight data is great because it's free, right? It's from open source providers. So what is it? Radar Nav and AirPortia. They provide this as a part of various other things, um, and and you know it's really easy to see. And weirdly last year, it was very contentious. Many people were arguing that China might never reopen, or that if China reopened, it somehow wouldn't have a material effect on oil demand. And so both of these to me seemed just nonsensical. There was just no world where I could see China just staying locked down forever. I mean, they weren't saying it, but also you could just see they're just, it was extremely unlikely and then for oil demand not to rise from going from, let's say, 500 flights a day in China to 2,500 flights a day in China, I mean, it's just math, right? You look at how much jet fuel is used per plane, uh, per essentially air mile or per day, if it's being pretty fully utilized. I mean, you can see essentially a million barrel a day potential uplift just in jet fuel demand, just from China turning back on to their pre-COVID level of flights. Um, so, so it's a very interesting thing because it was weirdly contentious. It's still apparently contentious, which is just, I mean, it, people have lots of sort of politics and opinions and whatever about various things in the oil market. And part of it's just like not caring and just trying to have an objective take on whatever the particular nuanced aspect or or micro thing is, right? So this is flights in China, right? Like uh, my take is that china like every other country pretty much rebounds to pre covid levels and then sort of resumes at a demand growth trajectory um and and there's a lot of data on prior disruptions for oil demand and uh you know those those are supportive of uh of this view that it was extremely likely they would pick up so um so what we saw was that flights started to pick up a lot from china first China to China flights and then second China to international flights and Oil bears have been pointing to just the total number of flights in China, saying, "Hey, this number is still really low." Ignoring what China has said, which is, "Hey, we are we first turn on all our domestic flights, then we're starting to award visas first to 20 countries and as to more." And they, I think uh, one of one of the people I, I've been talking to over there, uh, an expat um, at a big, uh, I think U.S. or Canadian company, I'm blanking on it. Um, he was saying that they literally his family is now allowed to travel to China as of yesterday and so you couldn't book your flight until you got your visa and they weren't giving the visas until yesterday or two days ago so it didn't what you cared about is the trajectory not the absolute number and the the absolute number has been rising a lot the trajectory is very positive um, but it's less about I mean I think that's a really important thing for let's say today's oil market and into later this year but it's always about, I think, sort of the incremental question. So where else is there gonna be more demand than people think? And then where is there gonna be less demand and similar to supply? So it's less about, you know, again, those are very visually appealing. They're very easy because there's open source data that we can share um, without any sort of, you know, copyright issues or whatever. We just tag the uh, people that that provided it and publish it themselves. Um, but it's not it's not that that's the only thing, it's that that's a very contentious thing, oddly. And, that may
1: be a material price driver over the next, let's say, six to 12 months. Okay. But even further than that, we have uh, just the development of countries like India, for example, and many of the other developing countries are going to be consuming more fossil fuels, more gas, more, more natural, uh, natural gas, more, um, more oil. So if you factor all of those things in, you have supply, incrimped or catching up at best, and you have demand just resuming and then growing from that point. So I'm not talking about a week or two. Who knows? That's randomness. But five years from now, uh, could one make the case that oil prices, there'll be too much oil? I just don't see it.
0: Yeah, I think at some point there will be too much oil again. I think one of the things that my (laughs) lived experience (laughs) investing in oil and gas and then studying the full history of it, and you can see my uh, bookshelf. I mean, I have a bunch of books that aren't up there too, but, you know, there's really interesting histories of oil and what you see is that in downturns, almost always there are folks like this past downturn, like Kathy Woods, where they say, oh, it's going away forever, or, you know, there's a permanent glut and then, um, you know, when there's shortages, there's people who say, ah, there will be a forever shortage. And the reality is that it's cyclical and that high prices lead to low prices and low prices lead to high prices. And the reason to spend so much time and really belabor the uh, supply chain issue and the underinvestment and exploration is that there's almost no price for oil. I mean, there's some price where you'd see significant demand destruction, but it'd be in the multiple hundreds of dollars a barrel. But there's almost no price where you get enough supply to meet likely demand, absent a price that destroys demand, and again because of the price inelasticity, you need prices to go wild, and to, especially in local currencies and emerging markets, you need them to just go so crazy, like they did in 2008. You know, 150 dollars a barrel then works out. I think it's roughly 220 or so dollars a barrel now. Um, and that's without factoring in refining costs and other sorts of issues and inflation and stuff. So uh, th- those inflationary aspects. So you'd need much higher prices to really affect things. So I think that's why that's why it's important to understand the the constraints because left to their own devices, the industry will overinvest and there will likely be oversupply. I don't know if it'll be 5 years or 10 years but at some point there will be but in between now and then it seems extremely likely that there will be a significant undersupply and radically high prices to essentially destroy some demand or you know mitigate some demand um, because that's that's essentially how the uh, oil market works. All right
1: so we're in the, we're, I, I if I could paraphrase we're really in, in the early innings of a bullish trend in oil. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. You, you put something out, which I thought was really cool, uh, how politics is getting in the way of smart energy policy. Could you expand on that for me? Oh, man,
0: <laughs> it's so bad. I mean, unfortunately, it's not even, you know, in the U.S., it's not even a Democrat versus Republican thing. Um you know, in Canada, it's not really a conservative versus liberal thing. There's just this sort of there's been this trajectory of NIMBYism where, you know, not in my backyard, uh, opposition to local projects and local development, um, you know, pretending like oil from Venezuela isn't sustaining a communist regime that's brutally oppressive and isn't, you know, polluting beautiful uh rainforests there and lakes and all these other things. Um so, you know, there, there's real significant opposition. Unfortunately, it's bipartisan. Um, and there's real significant opposition to development of natural resources across much of the Western world. And there's also some sort of uh utopianism that's trying to overcome math and physics. And there is a there's a reality, which is you can't <laughs> you you can't use an electric car to generate power. It's a consu- it's a consumer of energy. So when they say ah oh, these cars are clean, it's like well no they took energy to make them right. and then they consume. Uh, they consume whether it's you know gasoline or diesel or natural gas or electricity, whatever it is. They're not generating it; they're consuming it. And then the supposed sources often also require a lot of oil in addition to coal or natural gas or what have you to extract whatever the resource is and then put it into a form that it's able to generate electricity whether it's solar or wind or what have you so there's some structural oil demand that i think people are just trying to pretend away and that doesn't that doesn't really work and there have been some really interesting studies on countries that have high electric vehicle adoption rates and their oil consumption per capita And if, if we got to per capita oil consumption all around the world of certain of the Scandinavian countries, for example, that have heavily implemented electric vehicles, you know, very high adoption rates, I mean, I'll be very wealthy. <laughs> like, we can't get there. There's just not enough oil Without in the oil, world yeah. to be uh, able to uh, get.
1: Right. I think I saw something in one of the Scandinavian countries, I forgot which one, where they were telling people, do not plug into the grid. Uh, the the grid couldn't support it. I don't remember where that was, but uh, it was the end of December. I remember reading it in Bloomberg or at the FT. But the grid couldn't handle uh, because these grids are, as you know, ancient and they haven't been upgraded, and the infrastructure is not there. And we're plugging all of this and sucking all that energy out. And people think that when you you know charge your car, it's pixie dust which is going in there. You know, they don't realize many times it's it's coal or or some other uh, fossil fuel that is generating electricity. Electricity just doesn't come from magic dust.
0: Yeah, but, well for the electric vehicles, the oil inputs actually are more related to the um, battery and the various other car parts so it's more of like a manufacturer and then also the plastics it's right. it's phenomenal right. uh seeing people sort of uh imaginary like the the oil like just stop oil protesters who are wearing oil-based products use oil to get to their protest sites and
1: using plastic pens and uh you know yeah. uh, you're using... or petroleum-based paint yeah. I mean
0: it's really it's remarkable it's like try to do something without oil and you know you you have to learn a lot about oil and you learn a lot about uh, modern society and modern life. and the reality is that that fossil fuels really make our lives a lot better and we're not stopping using them even when in certain places we force using less of them uh, through government intervention, we just use more in aggregate because we shift the manufacturer of whatever it is that was getting manufactured locally to places that are less efficient, have fewer regulations and you know, rules around uh, pollution and stuff. So we pollute more and we get the same stuff. Um, it's a real, I mean, you know, I, I would prefer a cleaner planet. I'd prefer cleaner air. Uh, but but the the mechanisms that are used towards it are not are not really effective. And the people who say, oh, you need to stop are frequently very large personal consumers of petroleum products. And so, um, you know, I think I think it's really it's sort of a age of hypocrisy and sort of this utopianism versus math and physics. And so I feel very good investing in companies that are helping with producing more oil and more natural gas, because I think we'll need it. And I think the people who suffer from having less of it are some of the poorest and Uh, least powerful people in the world. They're typically very poor people in Africa or India, um, where they're the marginal consumer of oil, um, where they, by buying a gas-powered scooter and being able to bring their crops to market or being able to get to work, they they can cut out a three-hour commute or something uh, and dramatically transform their lives by using a little bit of oil um, versus the enormous amount that, you know, our environmental activists use in jetting off on private planes to go to environmental.
1: To tell the rest of us how we're not, you know, not being, um, are we using too much fossil fuel? What a joke that is. Um, All right. Yeah. It it just, you know, just just on an aside for a second, I had, um, we're talking about the Congo and cobalt. The difference between making a dollar a day and $3 a day is owning a moped because transporting 20 kilograms of rocks, two or three of them, you need a, some type of vehicle to do so. And the poorest of those people can't, and they uh, they have to um, take a very very low wage, about a dollar a day. While those who transport it just a few miles away, because they have the wherewithal to buy a moped or what have you, make more money than the people who dig for 12 hours a day. So I see in every country that has is is more uh, gets more electrified, electrification systems, infrastructure have a higher standard of life, and far be it from us to tell people. You don't want that. <laughs> of course they want that. Of course they want that. You're- you first, yeah. right?
0: Like you stop and then tell other yeah. people to stop.
1: But, but, but don't, you know. But people forget that it's, it's electricity, it's fossil fuel that allows incubators to run, uh, have lights turned on for surgery, uh, uh, creates uh, um, um, medicines, uh, petri... All of this stuff. And uh, to say that they don't, they can't have it because we want to save the planet is is just the wrong argument it's just I think it's more than hypocrisy I think it's arrogance
0: Honestly, I think ironically and sadly, it's racist and it's colonialist. And so okay, really, like that. when you think about who the incremental consumer is and you 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 hone in on that, and I don't talk about this that much because people feel very strongly about it and really, you know, my job from a Bison perspective is just to find great investments that are really undervalued and buy them with my money and my client's money and do well on them. But, you know, it's really, I mean, the, the people who have – oil withheld because the price is high or have natural gas withheld because you know various banks won't fund projects in Africa or what have you i mean it's really it's really tragic and i think there is actually a good that's done by investing in companies that that produce through that investment incremental oil that helps affect the world supply i think I think there are a lot of people who are going to suffer from higher oil prices over the next few years. And, you know, on one hand, I will make more money. On the other hand, I would prefer that they suffer less. And one of the ways to deal with that is to that, that I can affect that most directly is to invest in these companies and sort of facilitate uh, more rapid development of oil and gas resources. So I think it's really it's truly a, a humanistic aspect and I think it is a, a good thing to do to invest in these companies um, and I think it's highlighted by focusing on that that incremental consumer right when you see India Indian oil consumption is near or at all-time highs, and you look at where that's going, and it's literally, like you said, the moped user. It's going to be someone in rural India, typically a farmer, uh, being able to bring their produce to market, whatever that is, whether it's milk or eggs or uh, you know rice, whatever it is that they're that they're. Um, producing, and their quality of life improves dramatically. The price they receive improves dramatically if they can bring their produce to market versus selling it um, at essentially the equivalent of the roadside. And, you know, it's just a dramatic, dramatic change in life for those incremental consumers. And, you know, how dare... I or you or anyone prevent them from elevating their, their life from subsistence living to a little bit yeah, more than subsistence. Yeah,
1: yeah. you know, I, I saw, I, I forget where I saw this, but 2.6 billion people in the world fuel their ovens with biomass, uh, you know, wood, and whatever, cow dung, whatever it might be. And the women and children who are in the this little hubble, they're the ones who suffer uh, with uh, terrible breathing problems and die much younger, while the husbands are out working, what have you? And uh, here, gas or electricity will change their lives. Will change just putting an oven in their in their house in their hovel. Uh, that, that, but they're not even hooked up to electrical grid. They don't even have electricity. And here we are talking. Yeah, or, about- or a
0: propane grill or a whatever. Anything? I mean, there's there's various things that could really dramatically change people's lives with minimal cost and the problem is that they're either not allowed to or um, you know the the barriers to that are are very Very high and so you know when you think about oil and gas investment from my perspective it's really just reducing those barriers for uh higher affluence for the poorest people and everyone else sort of just sort of comes along for the ride because it's commodity but really it's sort of that marginal consumer that incremental consumer really sets the price and That price is set based both on, you know, supply demand, but also just on availability. And it's really important, I think, to be able to allow that to be available so people can go from, you know, if you burn wood in your in your single room house, you're going to live half as long or something. I mean, it really destroys your lungs. You get all kinds of other health issues.
1: And and also the pollution in the environment. It's just people don't get that. It's 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 destroying, you know, uh, uh, all that. Yeah, but definitely. We're on the same page on that. All right, so supply and demand, we're in the early innings of oil. China reopening is just one factor, but that's a short-term factor, but you could see where that's going. Uh, uh, Politics is just clogging this whole system up because people just, I don't, be kind to them, they don't realize. We'll leave it at that. Uh, So when you're hunting, when you're, pardon the pun, when you're drilling down and trying to find a good investment uh, to, uh, because bottom line, you're a capitalist. And uh, I see behind you, uh, The Snowball, Warren Buffett uh, by uh, Alice Schroeder, great book. Uh, You take a value approach to investing and uh, you hunt for great companies that can, that are totally mispriced by the market in the small cap space. Share with us why you hunt there and on the large cap. So I actually look at. All oil and gas companies, uh, large ones
0: and small ones, uh, right now, small oil and gas companies are historically mispriced. So right now we're buying small oil and gas stocks primarily because they're so, so cheap. And there's different ways to measure cheapness. Um, one is just on an absolute basis, measuring likely uh, intrinsic uh, value measured by you know likely free cash flow. People build these discounted cash flow models. Um, I typically don't build free cash flow models. Occasionally, we will for really specific purposes. But if it requires a model to understand that it's, it's cheap it, enough it's, it's, to buy, it's not cheap, it's not cheap right. enough to buy.
1: Right. That's what um, that's what so, Buffett said. Buffett said if you have to think too hard about it, it's not cheap enough. It should be so obvious to you that you could figure it out in 30 seconds if you can't then yeah it's it's got to just
0: be overwhelmingly and again like it's not that we won't build models but we're not building them to figure out if they're cheap enough there's other reasons to to do that sort of work um so there's another way to look at these things which is based on replacement cost so how much would it cost to recreate this asset Right to let's say for an oil field to explore, you know, risk adjust the exploration success to develop it to get access to infrastructure, and then to have this profile of production stream with these operating costs and these royalties, what would it cost to do that? Um, and then you know what's the time cost to do that as well because you know even if you decide you want to create a new oil field um you know you're going to take years of exploration and there's a lot of risk involved to actually hit oil or if you're buying an existing field that's not developed there's a high price to go and buy it and then develop it and so we find replacement cost is not something that people talk about too much and is very relevant both for producers as well as for uh oil field services companies um you know with their rigs or uh drilling drill ships or what have you. Um, And so one of the things happening right now is that you have these small companies, they're not just cheap, on replacement cost, they're cheap on intrinsic value. So, uh, the likely cash flow out of their existing assets without, let's say, very much new production or delineation just out of their proved reserves. And then they're also, in some cases, very cheap relative to the current transaction market. So, there was a company we talked about recently uh, or that we disclosed owning recently in West Texas. Where assets recently have transacted around, let's say, three and a half times run rate cash flow, and they were trading under two times run rate cash flow on an enterprise value basis. And there's a couple of things. Okay, so hang on, hang on. Let, let me make sure.
1: this simpler for those who aren't finance majors or hedge fund managers. What you're basically saying is just you're comparing apples to apples and saying these two companies, one is trading at a multiple of, let's say, four times cash flow, and the other one is trading at a Two times, uh, the one two times apparently is much cheaper than the one four times. Why would that? Why would that discrepancy happen? So, so, to be clear, what I was talking about. So, so that is also true. That's where where I say the small
0: caps are cheaper than the large caps. The this one uh, vital which I own and I'm not recommending, but using this as an example for sort of the types of things that we're finding on the small cap side. Um, so they're cheap. Let's say they're at roughly. Two and a half times cash flow at, at you know the current forward curve for oil uh, and natural gas versus uh, let's pick on a Diamondback or a Devon where they're at let's say six or seven times cash flow. Okay, those are much those, um, those are much
1: bigger companies,
0: much bigger companies exactly. Um, but but what I was saying was actually not that aspect. I was saying there are transactions happening where asset bases that are assets that are similar to the entire company of Vital Energy are transacting. Typically with the the, the people essentially come along with it, you buy the company, you pay out the bonuses and then you try to retain the people to continue running it uh, to the extent that they're they're necessary for for those operations. those those companies that are getting bought the private assets that are transacting are transacting at a multiple that's far higher than where Vital is trading
1: so it's not just that there's oh, other excuse companies me saying, vital stocks. vital being a company that you own in your portfolio yeah that's not recommending, but you using it as an example so you're saying using a, it's, it's okay, like okay so a company similar to it let me let me just let me just clarify so I, so i i make sure i got this so companies similar to vital are being tra- are being bought and sold, in the private marketplace, or even even being mergers, um, merger by a bigger company, for X times. Revital is comparable to it, but missed the market. The stock market is trading it only at half that amount. Is that more or less right? Yeah, more or less. Okay. Why does that happen? Why that discrepancy?
0: That's a it's a great question. So. Um partly because there haven't been many buyouts at premiums of small public companies recently, uh in oil and gas. Um, so the market just doesn't believe that they'll get bought out anytime soon at a price that's similar to the price that private oil and gas assets are getting bought at. So
1: one part is listen, review quickly, Mr. Market doesn't believe that that company that got bought out or taken out in a private transaction, public company, eh, maybe won't happen. I'm not going to give it that for you. Yeah. Okay, good. Second reason. And, and to be
0: fair, there haven't been many big premium transactions for publicly traded oil and gas companies in the last few years. Right. Is so that,
1: that's true. It's that's not.
0: True. It's not wrong that that hasn't happened. I think what's wrong about it is that there are a limited number of private oil and gas companies that are producing more than, let's say, 20,000 barrels a day of oil uh, in the US, especially in West Texas. There's a very small number, relatively speaking, of those companies and the valuations on those transactions. Um, Up until this recent oil pullback in the last few weeks, but sort of the general trend over the last two years has been a move up in valuation from, let's say, two times cash flow on assets to closer to three and a half times cash flow on assets. And so... there there is a trend, If if, if I owned a private oil company and I wanted to sell it right now, my expectation would be that I'd sell it for around the price that the other guy got, plus some amount, right? I'd always try to get a little more. So the last transactions I'd look at would be around three and a half times, similar to, you know, you're going to buy a house and you look at what the prices of the houses were in that area on recent transactions. So the comparable transactions indicate a much higher value than the public market is giving, for some of these small companies. And yeah, there haven't been many premium buyouts recently, but that doesn't mean that there won't be. And in the meantime, if a company is on a positive trajectory, if it's continuing to add value, um, let's say it's paying down debt or paying a dividend or buying back stock or growing its production or some combination of those, um, the value that it sells at eventually could actually be growing. Harder. So, you know. If, if you could sell for X, which is let's say two times your current share price, maybe in a year you could sell for 50% more than X. And then if valuations continue to rise, maybe you wouldn't sell for three and a half times, you would sell for four times or four and a half times. So there's multiple expansion on transactions and there's value accretion at these small companies. And so the combination of those sets up really nicely for when there will be more buyouts, but you also don't need buyouts of public companies to make money. The public market is ultimately a great place to realize value. And, you know, it's just one of the ways to tell how much value there is, is these uh, comparable private transactions uh, to, to measure them and see sort of how cheap or expensive they are versus these public companies.
1: And small companies are just not as followed. I think the average of companies under a billion dollars. I think there are only three analysts covering them and that could be a lot. And large caps have close to 22 or more than 20, I know that. So you have less eyeballs on these small companies, more price inefficiencies uh, and real opportunity. Would Would you agree with that? Yeah,
0: I think I think these days, sell side research, so so research analysts covering companies, as long as there's more than a couple, I don't think that's as much of a differentiator. I think the bigger thing is that there's been this move towards uh passive management. Because active managers do typically underperform, which is what I we talked about at the beginning of, of this conversation, um, there's been a shift of investors uh over to ETFs and the most popular are the large capitalization ETFs, the S&P 500 ETFs like SPY, um, similar ones in Canada and various, you know, there's world market ETFs and almost all of the money goes into the largest few publicly traded businesses. And so you end up as there's more passive investment, which again, for most people, it's not a bad idea for them to, if you're a dentist or a lawyer or whatever, and you can make more money spending time on your main business, you might do better if you, you're you're almost definitely going to do better than trying to actively personally manage your investments without any sort of edge, just putting money in passive uh, ETFs. The problem with that is that That money all congregates in these largest companies and the more that that continues, the more outperformance there is available, especially in small cap niches where specialists, Um, like, like we are at Bison, are able to find these really, really undervalued companies that have their own catalysts that are likely to revalue because they're buying back a bunch of their stock or they're doing something else that's sort of forcing the value up. And so it's really, I don't think it's research coverage anymore. I don't think it's, Um, I think it's sort of the investable universe for investment funds that are still active as well as just this overwhelming fund flow of, you know, exchange traded funds and index funds Mm -hmm. being directed almost entirely to large capitalization. They
1: they can't invest. Uh, You're spending, putting billions to work. You're not going to buy a $300 million market cap company. It's just too small. They move the needle and they can't absorb that kind of money. Right. So the money is, uh, gets, well, Clustered around, like it was FANG stocks, you know, when everyone's was buying the, uh, QQ, the NASDAQ 100, QQQs and all, uh, it's, it's where the big money can go. It's not where they want to go. It's the, where they, the only place they can go to. And that leaves a whole universe yeah. for guys like you.
0: Yeah, and and one one important thing similar to your question about the small caps like hey, what's going to change? <laughs> what how do you actually make money on these things? So, um small caps versus large caps historically have shifted where sometimes large caps do well and sometimes small caps do well, and when there's too many too much money on one side essentially of the boat or the teeter-totter or whatever, you you end up with the you end up with there being extra returns on the small cap side. As that starts to happen, as you have bonanza years like we did in 2021, you start to see money come in. And and oil and gas is weird. And it's weird in the sense that the the smart money, the institutions have promised to divest from the space. So normally what would happen is you'd have the university endowments and the pension funds allocating to hedge funds and mutual funds to be able to go – Find these niches and you know pr- reprice them to buy these really cheap stocks because of some of the politics and um, you know because of it's very it's a very complicated issue uh, but really th- there's there's money still leaving the space rather than coming in that would normally be arbitraging this and that's sort of extending this opportunity particularly in oil and gas but also broadly small caps have done worse over the last let's say decade or so in the broader market. And it's likely that that changes. And as money comes into these small cap ETFs, they're going to go into small oil and gas companies too, in addition to small tech companies and small whatever other companies. And so there's this sort of potential for a significant passive re-rate of oil and gas Public equities, as we have this sort of shift in assets from the S and P 500 ETFs to the, let's say, Russell 2000 or other sorts of, well, we're,
1: of uh, ETFs, we're seeing that now. You know, small caps outperforming uh, since I think it was uh, July or August of last year. And we looked at some work yeah. that had um, when uh, the start of a recession, uh, uh, the next uh, X period of time, I think it was a year or two. It was a one year after the start of a recession. Small caps outperform large caps eleven out of eleven times since the nineteen fifties. And the, and we had. A- I, I was not aware of that. That's really interesting. Yep.
0: What what I do what I do know for small caps for oil and gas is historically at this point in the cycle. Let's say we're in an inning. Let's say two or three of a nine inning bull market for oil and gas. Let's let's say two. At this point in the cycle, you would have small cap producers trading around seven times cash flow. You'd have them at a slight premium to the larger cap publicly traded oil and gas companies for various reasons, right? The smaller ones are more dynamic. They're better able to do accretive acquisitions, they're better able to grow. They're typically more aligned where the management teams and boards own more of the stock. So generally, you get a premium valuation for those those attributes. Here we are, it's the at roughly that part of the cycle, right. and we're at a giant discount. Right, and right, so it's right. like, okay, well, am I crazy or is this cycle different? Right. And when you look at every other cycle for small caps in oil and gas, every other oil cycle, and just over and over again, you see the significant re-rating up in small caps. And this this time, I don't think this time is different. I think this is just there's weird fund it, flows it's just basically right it's, now. It's
1: delayed. You know, it's one of those things where you do your work and you look at your numbers. And you say, I must have missed something. It shouldn't be trading where it's trading. It's uh, something's wrong here. And we had that on so many uh, so many stocks uh, last year. We were looking at, especially in the micro cap space. We were looking at valuations that didn't make sense, and I was telling my analyst, I think we missed something. He goes, no, we got everything in here. But, and then they eventually, you know, our thesis did play out. But you're, you're, you're spot on is that the um, that especially now there are so many cross currents the way we see it in the energy market in terms of that had nothing to do with the fundamentals of the business or the fundamentals of supply and demand, but it has political, ESG, uh, a whole bunch of factors which are just Muddying the waters now, but eventually, it'll it'll all play out the way it should be. That's just yeah, therotic. that's right. And you know, and and this
0: time really isn't different in nope. the sense that, like you're saying, I think I think it's more about a lag. And the wonderful thing about lags is they give you the opportunity. You know, I was a little frustrated a year ago. Hey, small caps, they're not, they're not re-rating. As I look at it now, as you know, we deploy more money, it's, it's wonderful. We get to go buy more stocks for a cheaper price than we should be able to. And, you know, the the businesses are moving how we we're expecting, and they're improving how we're expecting commodity prices, other than the this recent uh, Pullback are generally on the the right trajectory. The supply issue is becoming bigger. The demand issue is becoming bigger. Right, right. Uh, so we're on sort of this right path, and we're given there's like a a discount sale on the the uh, you know a flash a flash sale, and the stock market they say is the only place where when stuff is on sale people want it yeah, less. Yeah.
1: So it's wonderful. Yeah. Though no, the way we see this is like you know the the sale was only for ten days, and now they extended it for thirty. So you're going to be upset with that. But then again, it, it, tr- it tries it, it tries the temperament. It really measures the person investing, because this requires the hardest part of investing, which, as you know, is patience, doing nothing. You know, just waiting there. And if it, and usually it's been going the opposite way. and You say this doesn't make sense. Most people would sell out at a loss and move on. But uh, the smart investor, the intelligent investor, who knows, uh, you know, as, as market knows, you know, the price of everything and the value of nothing, and intelligent investors are just the opposite. If you see the valuation here, buying something at two times cash flow is not a bad thing, especially when you originally bought it at three times and the price went down. <laughs> You're getting a better deal. So that's something yeah. that most investors just don't get. But Josh, man, this has been really, really great. We've got to have you on again uh, maybe another six months or eight months from now just to see how these things work out because I love your take on the um, on the on the energy market, on your 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 knowledge of of oil and especially, Hunting in an area where the, where, where the big money's not going, and, that's, uh, and that creates the huge, huge opportunity in going to the small caps. And I uh, wish you continued success. And people can find you on bisoninterests.com. Highly recommended, folks, yeah. uh, uh, because he puts out uh, white papers there. And I, and I read some of his white papers a lot. Of, how much time and energy goes into this? I look at some of your white papers. You put in, gosh, these, these are term papers these are these are research papers that you give away for free so uh, yeah we uh this is just a fraction of the research we're doing this
0: is the stuff that we feel comfortable with uh writing up and putting out and uh you know there's sort of a balance of hey like what do we think matters and then what are we comfortable with sharing and so that's sort of that that balance um is is that that's the result of of us balancing those uh,
1: josh continued success lots of luck to you on the personal side and with your growing family, uh, God bless you there, and uh, keep doing, uh, keep doing the good stuff, and keep making money for your partners. Thank you very much. I really appreciate All right, it. Man, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.